Welcome to the Plant Cunning Podcast, where we explore a relationship to plants, other people, and the mysteries of nature. Coming to you from the High Allegheny Plateau in central New York, we are your hosts, A.C. Staubel and Isaac Hill. Episode 63, Ashkenazi Herbalism, with Deitra Cohen and Adam Siegel. In this episode, we speak with Deitra and Adam about how they rediscovered the lost herbal traditions of Eastern European Jews. We talk about the kinds of folk healers that existed in the pale settlement of Eastern Europe, about the Bali Shem, which were wandering Kabbalists, the Feldshers, which were basically field surgeons and folk doctors, the Opsprecherin, I'm not saying that right, but Adam will say it right in the episode, which were folk magicians and healers and midwives and granny healers. We also talk about the plants that they used. Plants like birthwort, St. John's wort, white water lily, and we have a lot of fun. So as usual, you can find us on patreon.com plantcunning if you'd like to support the podcast. And uh, I hope you enjoy the episode as much as we enjoyed talking with Adam and Dietra. Today on the Plant Cunning Podcast, we are super excited to have Dietra Cohen and Adam Siegel. They are the authors of um, a recent book, Ashkenazi Herbalism, Rediscovering the Herbal Traditions of Eastern European Jews. And um, we're going to talk to them today about the book and the culture and other things. So starting out, how are you doing today, Adam and Dietra? Great. We're great. Thank you. Thanks for having us on. This is so, this is so exciting. Yeah, we're really excited to be talking to you. Thank you. Likewise. Yeah, Likewise. This is a great book. It's really interesting. So we have a traditional first question, as you may know, um, on the Plant Cunning Podcast, and it is, how did you come to the plant path? And so I don't know if you want to go first, Dietra or Adam, but. Um, well, I'll, I'll go first. Um, okay. I've been thinking about that because I know you guys asked that on your podcast and um, I, you know, it took me a long time to kind of realize this. I don't know why, but um, I've been um, really like felt close to plants for a really long time. Um, Some of my first um, like smell memories or things like witch hazel, cedar, violet, clover, anise, um, lilac, even buttercup. My dad used to um, do this little thing with a buttercup under my chin and he'd say, do you like butter? And then he put the buttercup under there. And if it glowed yellow, then yes, you did. <laughs> wow. I remember that. My, yeah. I yeah. That kid. yeah, that was so fun. I loved when my dad did that. Um, so that was kind of my first kind of plant memories. And then when I was in like second grade, I kind of had a challenging um childhood we moved around a lot but I remember in one place that we lived in Germantown in Philadelphia on my way to school I'd always kind of like pay attention to these two giant plane trees that were like on opposite sides of the sidewalk on my way to school and I called them grandma and grandpa and I felt like they were like protecting me so I feel like I've had a long kind of secret connection to the plants and um I guess I guess as I as I got older I 
do things like um, rescue abandoned plants off the sidewalk and try to nurse them back to health and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And so it's been kind of a long and circuitous, but always plant filled path for me. Beautiful. Yeah, and and I guess my path, at least, to this book has been a little more prosaic. Um, as a as a research librarian, I've spent a lot of time looking at like obscure literature on plant commodities, specifically grapes and wine, tea, camellia sinensis, coffee, um, chocolate, and uh, distilled spirits. Um, so I've you know done bibliographies of scientific publications on these things. And as we were talking before, I've been just this morning working on early publications on on coffee. So um, when it came time to sit down with Dietra and start really delving into uh, a lot of the plant research from Eastern Europe, I had a a fairly good sense of where to go. Very cool. And And, go ahead, Isaac. Well, what, what got you interested in writing this book? I mean, and uh, the herbalism involved. Um, Well, that came about because um, when I was growing up in Philadelphia, um, I um, spent a lot of time in the woods. So that was more part of my plant path. And my stepmother, when I was a teen, introduced me to herbal medicine. And so I had this background always running about plant medicine. And I experimented a lot when I was... um, growing up and becoming an adult and one of the first books that I bought was um, this German herbal in the 80s called A Family Herbal by the Tice family and um, and so I always kind of had that around and I always wanted to learn more about herbal medicine but I didn't really have time and I didn't realize that you could go to school for it and so I became a librarian and I did that for many years and then at some point Um, I realized I want to learn more about this and I had more time and I looked um, for ways to uh, go to, you know, more formal classes and I found a place in Berkeley and, um, and at the time it was called the Olomi Herbal Center and uh, it was a, it's basically a four-year program and at the very beginning of it, um, the teacher's would ask, um, what are your uh, your family practices in terms of um, remedies, like like folk remedies, plant remedies specifically? And um, everybody in the class kind of had something like ginger. And, you know, for me, I couldn't think of anything that my family had done that was really specifically plant-based, except for like things like tea with honey and lemon. And so that was the impetus for me to start really digging into it because listening to everybody else in my class I I could not believe that um um Ashkenazi or Jews of the Eastern Europe of the Pale of Settlement had nothing that was plant-based it just seemed kind of counterintuitive and yeah somebody in my class that made this comment who's also of similar background she said well if we didn't have any plant remedies then you know at least we had chicken soup (laughs) (laughs) so yeah I I thought well that's funny 
Um, and then she said, if we didn't, it was probably because of religious restrictions. And, you know, at this point I have to say that I wasn't raised religiously. So I had no like idea what she was talking about. And, um, and, and, and again, I couldn't believe that any, any religious group would not allow their people to heal themselves with the natural world around them. So this was like the beginning of my, um, need to find more. And I was really, you know, being kind of an obsessive researching type librarian, it was real, well, it wasn't easy, but it was very, um, it was a spur for me to keep going. And so my, the book came out of this just like need to find something, you know, that I could sink my teeth into, <laughs> so to speak. Um, and, uh, um, so I ended up writing my final paper on what I found. And then one of the teachers was an ethnobotanist and she had encouraged me to uh, publish what I, my final paper. And um, I did that in the journal of the American Herbalists Guild. And when that came out, I realized, you know, not enough people are gonna be able to see this. And I tend to be kind of a shy person but I kind of forced myself to look into getting it published because I figured if I was interested in it and other people in my class were interested in it, other people of my background or people interested in, you know, the history of medicine in Eastern Europe would be interested in this. And so that's when I started looking around for um, a publisher. And I should also say that another one of the spurs for me while I was in school was I started to think of myself as, a, I'll put this in quotes, an herbal interloper, having to look at other people's um, written knowledge um, and their cultural um, plant um, medicine. And I didn't want to have to do that, you know, and it didn't feel good to me. And over time, that feeling kind of changed into a different feeling that I can talk about later. But um, those, those were some of the things that brought me to um, writing my paper and then the um, article and that eventually became the book. Yeah, that's, that's so inspiring and cool. You're like, all right, well, there's not really much research about this material. So someone's got to write it and why not me? Yeah, exactly. I love it. Yeah. I think it's so inspiring. And so I'm also curious on a personal level for you both, what brought you to each other? Oh, uh, well. <laughs> um, well, we met when we were in high school. Wow. Philadelphia. Yeah. We met at um, a party that was teacher's going away party because she was moving to California. <laughs> and then we were pen pals for a long time. Wow. Yeah. Uh, we're all over the place and eventually got together and have been together for it's been almost 30 years. Yeah. We were married for 20 crazy years, coming up 28. <laughs> well, That's so sweet. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool. So you started out as pen pals, so it's kind of natural that you ended up writing a book together, huh? Oh, yeah. That's, that's true. Oh, my God. That's right. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. We, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
Right, so, it's all pre-internet. This is like, yeah, this is yeah, you know, the 80s. Yeah, well, it's really like thoughtful of you. Yeah, I didn't yeah, think I didn't about really that. Think about yeah, that we've either. been writing Our... together for a long time. Yeah. So, um, Adam, what was your role in writing the book? I I know that you're you're responsible for um, all of the herbs in the Materia Medica section, which we'll we'll get into the like what the book is about too in a second, but you were um, able to put these herbs and their common names into multiple languages, right? Um, yeah, I mean, Dietra, well, we can talk about the, the selection process because um, that was, that, that, that's something that people ask a lot. There's 26 plants in Materia Medica uh-huh. and Dietra selected each and every one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, I brought, you know, my own background. I mean, Dietra came into this from studying, you know, from getting trained as a, a clinical herbalist. Mm-hmm. And um, I have a long background in Eastern European languages and cultures. Um, I, you know, I studied, you know, Yiddish and Russian and German and Polish and all the languages that we need to sort of do some of the more obscure, obscure research. Um, so, and, uh, you know, I was, I, I had training in, you know, Eastern European folklore in both ways. And, okay, uh, perfect. Yeah. So that so we really complimented each other. Yeah, you're like an all-star team. For this well, <laughs> <laughs> so this is like one of the first, like, what do they call like a secondary source? But like the, you know, all of the primary sources were in those languages that, you know, most Americans don't know, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's a lot of, there's some, we can draw on a fair amount of English language stuff. Yeah. But how did how did you find all of these the the sources because I know in the book you talk about how um, hard it was to find any information on on the herbal practices of the of the the, the pale region um well it's kind of it's still it started out stumbly because um, I had been working on monographs for um for, for, for the program that I was in. And so I had been using, you know, just English language stuff uh, that uh, I could find on, since I couldn't find anything that was specific to Jews that was more modern, because I was looking for things that um, went up to the Second World War, like things that my grandparents would have known. So, and I was looking in English and the I decided since I couldn't find anything on Jews of the Pale that I would look for other people and um, who would have lived uh, in communities around uh, my ancestors. And um, those books, there are three books in English right now that um, were published recently. Um, And one of them is on Poles, one of them is on Russians, and the third one is uh, Ukrainians. And uh, so one of those books turned out to be what Adam and I call the hidden herbal. And that would be the Ukrainian book. And um, that was the bumbling mistake kind of that I made or the, it's not a mistake. (laughs) It's more the discovery that I made because it's a book that's, um, it's really, 
some as a librarian that looks like something that any public library would have um tossed you know in a weeding project um because it's it's an it's kind of a, a, a old um mimeographed uh book that um is barely like bound like a real book it's between two pieces of cardboard yeah. it's literally mimeographed it's part of a series it's number 21 in that series and um uh it's organized in such a way that it you can it's organized by body system and then by plant family and then it goes into different plants and it never talks about the uh, well it's part of a an ethnographic study that was done in the 20s and 30s in Russia after the first world war when they ran out of um, medications and they were looking for cheap uh, healing remedies for their people and so this was part of those ethnobotanical studies and it was done in Ukraine and the information was taken after the war by this woman who was on the expeditions and she survived the war um, and came to the United States she was Ukrainian and then she had an excerpt of this data published in this book and it's only a seventh of the data that she brought with her in literally in a suitcase um, to the US. And it does never, it never identifies the informants. Um, and it, if you look in the book, it only identifies the towns where the informants lived, but it's abbreviated. The, the abbreviations are very difficult to read in the book. And so I had never looked at that. I was just looking at the plant information to talk about in my monographs about each plant. Um, that we were covering in our class. So at one point, um, I realized I wanted to know more about these people because I had been doing other research on, you know, Jews. And I had found out that um, a woman had come to the United States from Ukraine um, and pioneered the upper Midwest. And she was Jewish and she was uh, from a town called Krasilev. And it, she was a midwife and she was an herbalist. And so that, and it came from a book that I found online called In Prairie Dogs Weren't Kosher. So that story was part of like this impetus to find out more about Ukrainian. So I went back to this book, Herbs Used in Ukrainian Folk Medicine, and I decided to look up the towns that were listed in the back of that book because I'd never done that. And I wanted to find out a little bit more about the towns. And one of the towns was Kresilev, where this uh, pioneer had come from. And I, the, the index of the book with the towns is in alphabetical order. And I started going through them and on the internet. And we were sitting in the living room. And I went through the first one, the second one, the third one. And as I went through each one, the first hit that would come up on the internet was this site called Jewish Gen, which most people who've done any genealogy or Jewish, that's the site that you go to for your 
ancestral information about the towns and other information. And so 75% I found out from going through this list of the towns on that list, I would get these hits and I would get that hit first. And after that, the second hit would be um, uh, the Holocaust Memorial Museum or these um, cemetery uh, sites or these this site called the Shtetl Finder. And the Shtetl is a small Jewish town. And so I was like sitting there going, that's weird. And then I turned around and I said to Adam, I go, do you think this is important? Do you think this is significant? Mm-hmm. And you can imagine that he said, yeah, that seems significant. <laughs> yeah, you're on the right track here. <laughs> yeah, that was just the major, major breakthrough. I had all these little tiny ones coming up to mm-hmm. it, but that was huge. And um, so I spent the next six months going through that list and just finding out all this incredible information about these towns. And I put together um, just a, a, a document on the towns and the populations and breaking out different populations. And I had to use a bunch of sources um, like the 1952 Lippincott um Columbia Lippincott Gazetteer and some other like uh, Holocaust um, statistical manuals. And another one was this uh, Russian um, census from 1926 that Adam had to help me with because it's in Russian and um, some other Russian databases online. So I spent, you know, the good part of a year going through this list. And uh, that was just, um, you know, um, just very eye-opening. And right, because what yeah. you saw, what she found was that, um, you know, sure enough, most of the towns that uh, these uh, ethnobotanists visited in the 20s and 30s had, not all of them, but most of them had very substantial Jewish populations, up to 80, 90% in a couple cases. So, the logical inference is that most of the informants who are describing their, the plants that they relied on for their medicine and what they how they how they prepared them were probably were probably Jewish. And so that's that's the hidden herbal that we found inside mm-hmm. of this larger document um, on um, folk medicine in the Ukraine. And then I plotted all of the towns out on um, a Google map and it um, it very clearly shows that these towns are on the east side or the right side of the Dnieper River. I'm sorry, the west side of the Dnieper River. And um, that is historically where um, the majority of the um, shuttles in the pale were located. And yeah. Yeah, so it's a lot of you, you know, you said it's like a hidden herbal. It's a lot of like uncovering these things among other texts and other cultural research being available about the Ashkenazi Jews. And right in the subtitle of your book, you say rediscovering the herbal traditions of Eastern European Jews. And I'm wondering if you can speak to why we have to rediscover it. Why has this knowledge been lost or maybe trivialized or maybe, you know, not included in some of the larger cultural um, research and books that we have available? Well, that's a great question. And the answer to it is super, super com- 
complex and complicated. And uh, you can kind of approach it from a lot of different angles, but um, for starting out, I'll uh, say that um, the folk healers in the pale, the ones who relied on the plants and passed their knowledge mostly through talking orally, um, they were um, kind of um, uh, victimized, I would say, from starting in, in the Enlightenment period um, because the Enlightenment was all about getting rid of superstition and making everything very scientific and um, a lot of other things, but um, it translated uh, for folk healers in the pale um, in terms of kind of ridding communities of these older traditions. Um, and of course, um, the people who would have practiced these older traditions, the some of them were men at that time. They were called Balishem, and they were kind of traveling Kabbalists who um, worked with a lot of plant remedies, but a lot of them were women. And so their knowledge, the women's knowledge, was never written down. And it was very um, folk-based as, as opposed to science-based or do you want to book based? Yeah, or book based because the men, even the Balashem, they used these books that um, came from a lot of different um, sources. Um, some of it was biblical, some of it was um, Western uh, knowledge based. Anyway, the, the, the men, books. the remedy books, they had these remedy books that they used. And the women um, were, uh, their, their, their knowledge was all passed verbally. So when the Enlightenment came, um, the Balisham were specifically targeted because their knowledge was, while it was in book form, it was also had a lot of um, superstition, it would be called these days, associated with it. So that was the first part of how the erasures happened. Yeah. Second, well, you, you say in the book that um herbal and magical religious medicine have never been separate practices. They've always been intricately interwoven. And that's something that I've come to learn too, from like looking at a lot of different cultures, you know, folk practices of magic and medicine and herbalism, they all kind of go together. But so it makes sense that like, you know, after the enlightenment, people who are invested in the new religion of progress would want to uh, eradicate the, uh, mm. the, the, the superstitious, uh, traditions. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it took a while to get to the um, to Eastern Europe, but um, when it did come to the to the Jews of Eastern Europe, it came in the form of um, an, a, a movement called the Haskala, and um, there were a lot of reformers who were very adamant about, you know, stamping out these older practices and bringing in more Western ideas. And, you know, the, the Balashem really suffered and they eventually um, kind of died out um, over the next couple centuries. 
but um, somehow the women persisted and maybe because they were under the radar a little bit more. And um, so their practices continued on into the 20th century. And, but as women though, um, they definitely were discriminated against and um, uh, their uh, practices were discouraged, but people still went to them for, for what they had to offer. Yeah, it's even right up to today that there's, you know, underground midwifery conferences and, you know, because people can't practice midwifery without, a, you know, medical doctor's license still or the permission of a doctor. So the women's traditions are still underground in some, in some degree. Yeah, exactly. I was just reading about um, Appalachia. You yeah. Know, granny, the granny healers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, it's pretty definitely amazing. reminds me of yeah what you're the picture you're painting of the pale too. Yeah, no, the parallels you know are so so strong. I mean, it's just part of it. Just sort of underscores that you know the Jewish communities of Eastern Europe weren't weren't separate. You know, they were you know even though they may have been physically separated in the ghettos and so forth, the practices were absolutely and the traditions were completely in line with with you know, with, um, with everybody else, you know, yeah. the parallels are just amazing. Yeah. It's almost exact, almost identical, you know? Yeah. That is so interesting. And yeah. I, I want to get into some of the more, um, like the different types of healers specifically in a minute, but I'm wondering if you can tell our listeners, just paint a picture more of the region we're talking about, where in the world are we talking about? What is landscape and what are the people who are the people that are there what cultures are represented there so if you could so this is right what they call the palest settlement if you were to look at a map of you know europe and asia or a map of russia and poland and so forth it's basically a long flat plain that goes all the way from like warsaw the capital of poland and goes east and it's um it includes most of today's Lithuania, Poland, Belarus, Ukraine, a good chunk of it. Not so much Russia, a little bit of Moldova, maybe a teeny bit of, um, yeah, that's, yeah, that's, and it's mostly flat. It's sort of rimmed by mountains, the Carpathian Mountains in the Southwest and the Tatras and so forth. And it's, uh, has been traditionally the sort of the, um, the, uh, it's sort of like the cradle of, you know, of, of, of the Slavs of Russia, you know, around Kiev and Rus and so forth, going back a thousand years. So it's always been a region where there have been a lot of different ethnic groups living, you know, living in close contact up until the Holocaust. Certainly there were millions of Jews that lived there alongside Ukrainians and Poles and Romanians and Roma and Russians and Hungarians and so forth. Um, even Germans. And even Germans, a lot of Germans too. And so it was a real ethnic melange for, for many, many centuries. Yeah, and so they there was a lot of uh, intermixing and um, cross-pollination is what you're saying. Instead of like, we sometimes think of the past as very static and like everyone stayed in these these areas and they didn't move and they didn't like exchange ideas but i mean really when we look at history there's a lot of 
of exchange. Um, so with, with that, that process was happening in this area too, where like you're getting um, information from all different areas and cultures and, and, and a kind of like a, a new, you know, kind of culture was being formed, even though there's, there's heterogeneous cultures, there's also, there's this intermixing too. Mm. Is that right? <laughs> well, yeah, I'd say so. And some of it, it's interesting. I mean, some of it's sort of determined by the physical landscape, right? So there are plants that are native to the region that grow are grow widely there naturally, and everybody re relies on them. And then in some cases, there were, um, you know, magical practices associated with healing that may have had an original source, but were widely adapted. Like for instance, we, we, we talked about it glancingly in the book, um, wax pouring as an example of, um, of a, a, a divination practice that was really, really, really popular and is still popular. You can still consult a wax pour to get, you know, to get it, um, get a, remove a curse or to provide some guidance on what you should be doing. And yeah. That's it's really, it's it's all very interesting um because there is a lot of there's that that um combination of the magical religious uh traditions as well as the herbalism going kind of hand in hand and you talked about the ba uh what is it ba bali shem oh yeah mm -hmm. there that's a really interesting um you know job <laughs> so they're, they're like they're like roaming cobblists right yeah 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 they they definitely were a popular um healer at for a long time in the pale but um after uh us another movement um kind of took over uh they sort of um transitioned into a different um, kind of healing mm. um, and um, I for me for me the Absprecherins are more interesting because they uh, kind of persisted mm. for a really long time I mean almost it seems like back to the biblical times and somehow were in Eastern Europe throughout the history of the Jews there up until um up until the Holocaust, and they were more popular than than the Balisham during the Balisham's time, and were a more popular healer um, even up through you know the twentieth century. And they're the ones that Adam was talking about that um, would have practiced this uh, this wax pouring mm. um, divination. And when you look at that area and other peoples. Uh, women specifically were also from other cultures doing the same exact practice. And you can yeah. find these same practices happening in Canada from the Ukrainians who migrated there from the Podolia region, which is um, kind of uh, one of the areas that we concentrate on in Ukraine. And they're doing the exact same things. In fact, you can see videos of their practices on the internet. And there are also um, Polish practitioners today who I believe are called Shpuchtuchy. Yeah, yeah. Whisperers. Whisperers. Mm -hmm. 
Ooh, huh. And they're all practicing exactly the same way. And they all do this thing called an incantation mm-hmm. before and during the wax pouring. And in some cases, we read that the uh, the Shprekarans in um, Ukraine were doing their incantation in Ukrainian. And um, the ethnographic uh, group that... Um, uh, studied them at the beginning of the 20th century, took this incantation that was done in Ukrainian and transcribed it into Yiddish. Yiddish. Yeah, Yiddish and then we had to retransliterate it yeah. out and then add <laughs> translated it into English for the book. So it's just really fascinating how everything is so entangled. And for us, that was just so exciting to see that at least the women and the men too in their way, but the women work together to somehow practice the same way and share these healing methods across the cultural divides, you know? And for us who came from, you know, growing up in the seventies and all you hear is just how like removed the Jews were in the pale and how nobody got along and it was always, just contentious and dangerous. Here's uh, under running under was this undercurrent of healing that just kind of transcends all of that. And it's just really a hopeful message mm-hmm. for me, particularly and for you too, that you know, this this has happened in the past and the plants brought people together. Mm-hmm. And it's just exciting, you know. Yeah. I think that's really important, especially now too, like where we have these discussions about like, you know, cultural appropriation and where some people take it to the extreme where like, you know, if you eat Chinese food from somebody who is like <laughs> from European descent, then you're, that, that's racist or cultural appropriation. But at the same time, you know, there actually is, you know, re- misappropriation happening. But when you look back, the people are borrowing every which way. Yeah, Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, like I said, at the beginning, I didn't want to be an herbal interloper. Yeah. And I realized, you know, what you just said is true, but also, you know, and this might sound a little woo woo, but um, I realized the plants, you know, are their own beings. Yeah. Exist for us, you know, I mean, they're really generous and they've been like incredibly just helpful and just, you know, there for us, but, you know, we really, can't you can't colonize a plant you know you just can't you can't claim it you know and stick a flag in it Mm -hmm. I mean they're their own sovereign beings you know and um so just yeah yeah Yeah. so um I'm really interested in in hearing more about the different types of healers and um, you mentioned the Bali Shem and the Upshrekarans. Is that, am I saying that right? You, you uh, uh, up, yeah, Upshrekarans. Up with a P sound. Upshrekarans. No, there's two P's. One after the other. in. I know it's a mouthful. <laughs> like speak, speak. Like exactly. Yeah, Upshrekarans. Kind of, it literally means exorcist. Like to speak away, to wave something off by spe- saying it away. Upshrekarans. Oh, nice. wow. So they, they were, 
they were both like more religious and kind of more of like a shaman vibe as far as what I can tell. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And then there's different types there's, of healers. There's the the Jewish feldshears that mm-hmm. were that were literally the translation is field shearer, and so they had more of a role of barber as well as like paramedic vibes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. They um they had some training with they they started out uh very early on as um both barbers although the barbers would have been the non-Jewish Felcher or Cyrillic. And then the, um, you want to help me out here with the Felcher history? Oh, yeah, they uh, basically it was, uh, yeah, it was um, battlefield paramedics. That's the origin of the Felcher. And, they were, they were and are still really important in Russian medical care because of the huge distances, the number of people who live in really small communities where, you know, it may be impossible to attract or afford to support, you know, a trained, a trained physician. So the Felcher really um, served as the de facto sort of, you know, uh, certified medical, particularly once they started certifying them in the 19th century they would they would sort of serve that role um yeah but before they were uh professionally trained uh in institutes that kind of sprung up in the 1800s um they had been working from these remedy books that uh that the Baal Shem had also used so these things had been passed down from one family to the next and they were published uh usually in Poland and disseminated throughout uh the pale so there were a lot of different remedy books and the felchers relied Mm -hmm. on those a lot and the remedy books had a lot of plant knowledge in them Mm -hmm. and and felchers and and a lot of the felchers were jewish because they were restricted from pursuing you know if you wanted to be a, a, a a a medical practitioner and you were jewish you might not be allowed to go to medical school you weren't allowed to go to saint petersburg or moscow to study medicine but you could become a felcher and particularly if you went back to your, you know, state in the pale. So, and they the- kind of specialized in um, everyday healing, you know, colds and flus and things like that, as well as like wound care and surgery, surgery and you know, yeah. that kind of, that kind of stuff as well. Yeah, they would bleed you. They would cut things off you. <laughs> they they did cupping. Yes. Oh, yeah. uh-huh. Yeah, which uh, who knew that um, in the pale cupping was a big thing. And in fact, um, my mom told me that my grandfather had a set of cups because um, he had uh, lung issues and um, the cupping was used for respiratory ailments. And that's another um, interesting uh, kind of um, east to west cross-cultural thing. Yeah. Yeah, because I mean, when you think about cupping, uh, you think about um, traditional Chinese medicine, mm-hmm. but yeah. there was in the pale and probably had come over the Silk Road at some point. So cool. And then in addition to the Felchers, there is pharmacists and early Jewish physicians. And so um, do you want to speak to a little bit about what the pharmacists role in the community were? Like, were they helping people in a healing sense or are they just providing the medicine? Um, 
probably both. Um, uh, that's another complicated question because in a lot of times, in a lot of areas, it was illegal for Jews to have a pharmacy. Um, but um, I think it, in the book we mentioned um, there were ways of kind of workarounds, you know, for that. And so people would travel to different areas to go to Jewish pharmacies or they would do things kind of under the table and they would make their own um, recipes and prescriptions and sell those. So it was kind of uh, uh, just all different varieties of pharmacies and um earlier on in the earliest pharmacies these were places where different healers could come together and talk about their different forms of healing so the pharmacy kind of served a lot of different purposes and uh was run in a lot of different ways over time and space <laughs> yeah and um so then there's the early Jewish physicians that I wanted to just touch on briefly as well. So um, they were more like a doctor that would go and do like house calls. And were they mostly men? Uh, they were mostly men. They would have to leave the earliest Jewish physicians. They had to go to places like Padua in Italy to uh, learn the medical knowledge at that time and when they would come back if they came back to the towns that they had originally come from they um would be the uh physician to um the upper classes and uh some of them were even physicians to sultans to um other uh ruling elites um and so they didn't really interact with with the day-to-day -day people at the earliest times. Right. And so then that brings us to the women healers, really, who were there for their local communities from birth throughout their life as general well-being right to death. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you have the midwives and the wet nurses who were, you know, focused around births. Um, mm -hmm. Tell yeah. us a little bit about their, their role and what you know, maybe practices or plants or something, things that stood out in your research? Well, you know, it's hard to reconstruct all of this and especially over, you know, that long period of time. But from my understanding, I would say that the Opschbrecherin could function as a midwife or any number of these needed healings. And so um, midwives um practiced um not necessarily as somebody you would think of today you know they incorporated all kinds of things besides um plant medicine things like magic um one of the practices that i think of right now is like when somebody was giving birth they would open up all the windows and all the doors and in a kind of symbolic way of just opening up the womb and opening up a woman to get ready to give birth and it's interesting just recently i was reading that that practice of opening all the doors and the windows um wasn't 
just specific to Jews. I mean, I've been reading about it in Appalachia too, which is kind of fascinating. So I don't know if it's a universal life still to figure that out. But anyway, this is one of the uh, magical kinds of beliefs and practices that the mm. midwife and possibly an Abschbrecherin um, would have done um, in the pale. Yeah. Say something about grannies and bulbas. Oh. The yeah. The, you... Oh, because um, when you when you talk about a midwife, I mean, the, actually, the, the oh, term right. that gets used is not midwife. You know, in in English and in Russian, they would distinguish between um, and Ukrainian. They distinguish between a, a, a trained midwife, right, an oh, akusherke, right. an akusheritsa, somebody who actually went to school to study midwifery, and then Versus the babushka. Exactly. The right. bo, in Yiddish, the bobet. Mm -hmm. The granny. It just exactly. means granny. And a boba is a boba is a boba. And a boba could be a midwife or wet nurse, an upsprecher. And bobas were just healers, like yeah. old, older. And, and so the yeah. roles were kind of fluid, you know, boba yeah. could do all kinds of stuff. Yeah, they were often um, an older woman. You know, you, you kind of think of them as postmenopausal. I'm not, I'm not sure. We're not sure that that's the case, but yeah, often a grandmother of mm -hmm. grandmother age, you know, a more mature woman was. Uh, the the bobe, and it seems like they're they're the granny vibe, in the sense of how much they care for the children that they're delivering to. You know, like we're we now pay for a midwife, they do their thing, and then you know maybe there's a couple follow up visits, but it's not like they're coming to your kids' birthday parties every year, and they're like, you know, I don't know. There's just a different thing than what you described about these. Yeah. Yeah, what we found is that, um, you know, these bobas that delivered their babies, they were in their lives from, you know, from the very beginnings until sometimes the, the, the bobas death. And when that happened, all the kids that had been born um, with help from this boba would um, light a candle and they would do a procession through the town in her honor. Mm. And so according to one of the um, recollections, this was something that you would never forget because you would see this parade at night of candles going hundreds, through the town. Hundreds. Yeah, pretty oh, amazing. So powerful. Yeah. And then there's um the lamenters and the mourners or the wailing women which i feel such like a yearning in my heart and soul for this role to be popularized again to be like part of our culture i feel like we're just missing out on this like such important part of our lives which is honoring and dealing with grief and death which in the u.s I was not raised with any tangible skills for dealing with grief. So I just flail about every time it happens. But if I had like these lamenters or wailing women, like in my community, I feel like I would feel so held. So I was wondering if you could just tell us what they are and what, what their role was. Um, uh, like all the women, they were kind of like, um, maybe a little belittled in the, like overall um, literature, which is often uh, always male dominated, but we did find um, a picture of three of them in some of the literature that was done uh, in 
the ethnographic studies of the Jews of the Pale that I talked about earlier, the Ansky expeditions. And um, so that was exciting to see a picture of them. And they were just there at a funeral, you know, just kind of channeling all the feelings and the grief that would come through the people who were um, there to honor this person's life. And one of the quotes that I found was that they could make even the most cynical man cry with these songs that they would just kind of um, make up as they went along. It was just you know, telling the story of the person's life and incorporating probably biblical verse. And they just would do this swelling, swelling, just a uh, song in honor of this person. And it was just sounds incredible. And I don't believe that the expeditions got um, recordings of them, even though they had meant to. And the closest that I could come to finding anything on this were these Karelian singers um, from Finland and then the uh, the singers in Italy. So these tradition, the tradition of a woman singing in this way goes back to, I believe, possibly the Greeks. Probably prehistoric. Yeah. It seems to be a universal. Yeah, it's a universal, prehistoric, um, just a uh, way of honoring, you know, a momentous mm -hmm. occasion like a death or, you know, a victory or a defeat or, yeah. yeah. I, I know that um, there's a, a contemporary magician, Drake, Jake Stratton Kent, who writes about Goetia and he said he traces that term to the ancient Greek goeats who were basically whalers and mourners and and also wow. spoke to the dead so yeah, <laughs> like that that long ago it was at least a mediterranean um practice but yeah i mean that it, it makes sense to have to have a way to uh mourn collectively you know loss yeah 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 right we do need that you know we really do just to just kind of feel that like unity you know and, and song can do that you know kind of really gets to you at your heart level yeah for sure yeah I just think it would be really cool if today families who are in the process of losing a loved one or lost a loved one could call upon these like professional mourners who will come and hold space and they'll sing you know these heartfelt songs and just get everybody in the community to like give them the space to, to cry and to feel and to be moved. You know, it just seems like such a valuable tool. Yeah. Who knows? Maybe somebody will take up the mantle and start doing that. That would be amazing. Yeah, yeah. that well, would be amazing. Well, we also don't even don't have communities in, you know, industrialized West, you know, not in the same in the way. Same way. <laughs> Right, exactly. Right. Mm -hmm. Go down the uh, the the, su the suburb. Um, right, I know. <laughs> I see it here at the Veterans Memorial. <laughs> I think it's gonna happen. Yeah. yeah. Is there anything, um, any other role that the the women healers of the Pale had that we didn't touch on that we should? Uh -huh. Just taking them off. We've talked about midwives, we've talked about Sprecherins, we've talked about wet nurses, mourners, lamenters, felchers. 
Mm. Bob, Jim. Then I guess the last was um, you mentioned was like the distillers, brewers, and like kind of the product makers who would have like salves and things like that available. Yeah, that's something that again we're you know we're 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 just we're trying to write a blog post about that right now to put up on our Instagram. Um, Yeah, that's uh, you know distilled. You know, as you, I mean, there are three you know, three zone, alcoholic zone, you know, that go throughout Eurasia, you know, the Mediterranean has wine, grapes grow there. And then above that, you can make brew beer because you can grow hops and barley and malt. And above that, it's too cold for that sort of thing. So you have to distill spirits, usually from fermented, you know, rye or potatoes. And the distillers and the tavern keepers, especially in a, um, the pale, uh, the, the, those trades were dominated by, by, by Jews, um, in part because uh, um, the, 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 no, the nobility of the great big landowners that had to do something with their excess grain so they would distill it, they wouldn't, they said, we can't trust, you know, our, our, our own peasants because they'll just drink it all. But these Jews, <laughs> supposedly, they're very abstemious, they don't get drunk, so let's entrust them with, uh-huh. um, with distilling and with distilling and brewing. And also tavern keeping because they won't drink up the proceeds, and so you ended up with um, um, and that was one of the ways into Dietrich's research was she was finding these uh, b- bottles, these beautiful bottles that had uh, bitters in them mm-hmm. from like the 19th century. That can't yeah, and that's so cool. Yeah, so so these these um bitters bottles were showing up on these um sites that collect uh bottles um of liqueur from the 19th century and earlier and one of the bottles that i found by accident was this bottle by a a family called the kantorowicz family who were from a polish town and they were so successful with their bitters that included things like gentian and calamus and anise and um a whole range of um herbs and fruits um that they they were so successful that they ended up opening factories in germany and so this was another area that uh i i found was kind of need more exploration as far as like medicinal herbs because today i think we we think about bitters as like a, a additive to a cocktail, but bitters, as you, you probably know, AC is um, a very medicinal um, product that people take before eating to help digestion and mm-hmm. yeah, the salvation process. And um, so that was really another exciting find. And, you know, we're doing yeah. a little more exploration in that area now. Um, yeah, we found a reference to, um, um, the, I don't know if it's homebrew, but um, Hasids in, uh, in, 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 right. in Ukraine were, um, were, uh, were, were, were renowned for making their own um, absinthe. Yeah, that was a big and, one. And the rap was that they, ideally they would let it age, but apparently they couldn't help themselves before <laughs> it got to the right the right vintage but um that was absolutely artemisia absinthium of course is one of the the, the crucial plants you know in the materia yeah. medica 
And so again, this is something that we found after after the book came out. So mm -hmm. we're really excited to keep looking more deeply at this at this stuff. Yeah, yeah, it seems like you you guys are keep you keep digging and finding more um, information. So that's cool that you have a blog that you you're writing on and Instagram. You said where where can people find that? Just while we're talking about that, um, well, we've got our Instagram, which is Ashkenazi Herbalism, and then uh, we also have a website that uh, has a blog on it, and um, that is AshkenaziHerbalism.net. Okay, right. cool. But we should actually talk about some some plants. You guys want to talk about plants? <laughs> <laughs> Thought you'd never ask. <laughs> so you have 26 plants in your Materia Comedica, Medica section of the book, um, some of which modern, modern herbalists probably still are using or oh, yeah. are they definitely using, some of which maybe have fallen out or are a little bit more like toxics. So you have to be specialized. Um, I'm wondering if you can just talk a little bit about how you chose the herbs in this section to start? <clears throat> Mainly, I chose the herbs that were the most prevalent in the highest uh, Jewish population towns. Uh -huh. So I first looked at, I had made a, a, a giant wall chart of the plants intersecting with the town. And I was seeing some um, different patterns. Uh, as far as like areas and plant uh, use was concerned. And so I decided to kind of take that route. And so a couple of the plants I was a little hesitant on, but um, our uh, editor encouraged me to continue to leave them in there. One of those was the Aristolochia mm -hmm. um, because it really is a toxic plant. And you really do need to know how to use it in very, very, very small and careful doses. Um, so obviously the people who were using it, the probably uh, midwives um, were very skilled in, in their knowledge. Um, so I, I put that plant in there because it was something that seemed important to uh, the people. Um, in the towns with the highest Jewish populations. And it has a lot of caveats. Um, obviously, uh, it's not, this, this Materia Medica is not meant to be um, seen as a working herbal. It's really just kind of a glimpse into what was happening at the time, right before the Second World War. And also it has a long comparative section because I wanted to see um, where these plants were coming from and what other people were doing with them. And sometimes it lined up with what was happening in the pale at that time. And sometimes it was totally different. Um, so in the case of Aristolochia, it was somewhat different from what other people were um, going to that plant for. Yeah, the Aristolochia is a really interesting plant to me too. Um, it, like I was reading Rosita Arvigo's book uh, about her study with a Mayan uh, traditional healer. And there's an, another species that grows in Central America that is used by them. And it's, it's used, all, you know, all, th all throughout the world. Uh, you know, in, in the Americas, there's an Aristolochia that is used for like snake bite. Mm -hmm. and in the yeah. middle east um i mean like the some of the like astrological magic texts they use aristolochia juice for a specific you know astrological talisman 
Um, so it's like it's used a lot, but you don't hear it used these days, you know, the, by, by some, you know, because it is poisonous. So the um, common the common name is clematis or birthwort. Well, it's mm-hmm. to look at clematis. That's the second yeah name. Clematis is a, a different uh, plant. It's still so, a vine. But yeah, it's, it's a vine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But birthwort. Yeah, birthwort. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. When I, when I look more closely at it, because I'm going to have to open the book and look at it. <laughs> uh, looking at things uh, more historically, like um, uh, one of our sources, which was Tobias Ha Cohen, um, he was talking about the Aristolochia lunga and the Aristolochia rotunda and um, his uh, area where it was mentioned in, in his um, documentation was for the birthing process. But um, in the pale, it was what was reported in the Ukrainian book was really different. It was um, more in line with um, German healing and seems more topical, uh, like for non-bleeding hemorrhoids. And, oh, thank you. Um, and it, and <clears throat> yeah, it's basically um, a different species than the Hakone plant. Um, but again, it was um, more seemed to be associated with um, uh, topical uses like um, a wash for head lice or um, a veterinary um, sprinkle for wounds with worms as opposed to um, a a more internal use. Well, that makes sense for a poisonous plant, right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You want something that has has some kick to it if you're, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) So some of the other plants um, include, well, the white water lily, that's mm-hmm. that's something that you know I, I read like I don't hear being used often, but um, I like reading through Matthew Woods, or Earthwise Herbal like that. It, it has like sp- very specific uses, but they're very powerful uses, and it's a important plant. But so what 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 did they use that for? Um. Well, um, according to the uh, Ukrainian source, um, it was. Uh, kind of uh, more in line with some of the Russian uses for like heart disease, um, edema, shortness of breath, kidney disease. Um, Midwives seem to be using it for heavy menstrual flow and to stop um, a heavy menstrual flow. Um, It was also um, applied for stomach catars, dysentery. Um, Let's see, what do I have here? written some notes down rheumatisms and burns and um i also read in uh russia it was used for um suppressing um sexual desires huh huh so that's 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 interesting yeah yeah and in fact ha cohen i think um i'm still going through the ha cohen literature it's Mm. very complex and um kind of hard to uh, tease out, but it also seems to have been for suppression of um, sexuality. Uh, and um, it seems also to have been used um, for the French disease or syphilis in formulas um, that included cannabis, hmm. cannabis seed, grape seed, and guaiacum. So oh. that's what I have in my notes here. Yeah. So it's definitely a, another complex 
plant that um, gets all different kinds of attention in different ways from different peoples. Nothing, it doesn't seem consistent, you know, uh, even throughout that region. Well, some of the other plants that you that we talked about, um, St. John's, St. John's wort, yeah, that's that's, that's another. another common one that we use yeah. today often. Um, but it kind of also has like the magical religious aspect of um, having the ability to repel evil spirits. Yeah, solar power. Um, yeah. So it's always, and from yeah. literally yeah. demon protection is what the Yiddish name you say in the book is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, that's funny because when I was, you know, early on in my um, studies, I just kind of assumed the name St. John's Wort was universal. And I thought, well, Jews never used something called St. John's Wort, <laughs> which was just, you know, for me, even not being religious, I really had to break down all these like kind of just limiting stereotypes that I had. Mm-hmm. And that was probably one of the first ones mm-hmm. um, because uh, there's another reference that I used for um, finding some of the words that were used for these plants. And um, it's uh, Schechter's, it's called uh, plant names in Yiddish and it's available through YIVO, which is um, online, Y-I-V-O. So if anybody's interested in looking at that book, that's a really interesting book because it gives all these plant names, hundreds of plant names in Yiddish. And um, St. John's wort um, or Hypericum perforatum is uh, in Yiddish known as Shedem Sheets, which means literally protects from demons. And so, um, when you look at the book, the uh, Ukraine, herbs used in Ukrainian folk medicine, the most important plant was Hypericum perforatum, St. John's wort. And so uh, the way that it's reported in that book is um, she tells a little story about that plant and about her father who would have had some stomach problems and he tried for years to get rid of them and he couldn't. And so he eventually went to quote the village quack who <laughs> asked the village quack. Well, unquote. <laughs> unquote. Who's going to heal you. <laughs> right, exactly. I guess he was desperate at that point with these digestion problems. And he went to this person because, you know, what did he have to lose at that point? Who told him to take St. John's wort. And um, this is the plant that healed him. And so that was just, you know, um, very eye opening to me because who would have been the village quack? The village quack would have been the, um, the Abspracher and yeah. And this is the person who would have given this plant to somebody who had a stomach ailment because, um, well, today we use, uh, St. John's wort for, um, anxiety, mm-hmm. but a lot of times anxiety and stomach problems kind of can be very interrelated. Right. Yeah. We have all these little nerves in our gut. Exactly. Become yeah. Exasperated and mm-hmm. yeah, isn't it? It's like the second um, nervous system, or it's like you know that's where all the nerves are. Yeah. 
but yeah. So that was, that was just a really interesting story for me to hear. And then I went back to Ha Cohen, this Tobias Ha Cohen, who uh, published his mm -hmm. um, Materia Medica or his uh, medical tractate in um, the, uh, the 1700s and he talks about he has a section his book talks about uh hypericum um so much i mean there's probably the most entries of a plant or in on that plant in his book in his section and in, in his section he mentions the evil eye and midwives and um uh children um and have the plant ha having a special relationship with the folk healers um and how uh they do incantations around the plant and they um included in amulets that you carry with you and um so it, it was just really it's just a very interesting plant that uh was um very important to the jews of the pale yeah um, i can i can imagine because you you list the common names in several different languages and there's 22 common names in Ukrainian. <laughs> that you yeah, it was very important to all the people of that, um, of that region. And um, as we know, it's important to people all around the world to find that plant and, um, and connect with it. Yeah, a little anecdote, uh, sort of a gloss on that anecdote that teachers told you that the, the, the author of that herbs used in Ukrainian folk medicine, her father, the, who went in, to seek out the renme from the village quack, was one of the most prominent um, botanists in Russia. Huh. Um, yeah. Uh, I can't remember wow. his first name. Yeah, Osakov. And, and that even he, you know, at his last resort, you know, <laughs> and he said, is told, well, here's some St. John's work. That'll, that'll, that'll right. fix you. This goes to show that people who are sort of immersed in a, you know, in the Western scientific tradition uh, often can't see what's right, literally right in front of them. And I, and I should mention that um, that passage from um, Ha Cohen that talks about the incantations and the amulets and also bathing children, and he talks about fear, that's the total domain of the Abishbrakarans and um, especially their um, wax ritual. And mm -hmm. so um, there are other stories uh, that we mentioned in the book um, where uh, an Abishbrakaran is um, uh, healing somebody's fear paralysis or mm -hmm. um, a manifestation of it, like a bedwetting. And um, it's never explicitly mentioned, but um, St. John's wort was a plant that would have been um, brought out to, um, to, to work with this, um, with this, uh, this issue yeah. of um, healing the fear paralysis. And so I kind of want to go back to, to the, um, those erasures that we were talking about earlier, because I only got as far as the enlightenment, but um, the, in the Jewish communities, the women, we're so kind of like second class, which is not, you know, uncommon the world throughout the world, um, especially, uh, you know, before, you know, the modern, the contemporary era. But um, so their practices were never recorded. So these, these instances of um, seeing the wax pouring in 
you know, uh, by an Absprecherin is very rare. You don't really see that in the literature. You really have to hunt and dig for it. So that was like another erasure. And then um, the the government itself was also trying to get rid of all these old practices. And then, of course, by the time the Second World War came around, that was like kind of the final um, erasure of these practices. So it's very um difficult to find the plants that the women use because even the ethno um the ethnographic surveys that went around in the early 20th century didn't talk about the plants because the plants are difficult um they're kind of um a very specialized area of healing that if you don't know botany or if you don't know um, it's kind of a science in a way. And if you don't have an ethnobotanist with you, you don't really collect that data because it doesn't seem as important as like the magical stuff that's more kind of like outrageous. So this plant knowledge really disappeared and it's very exciting to have found it hidden within the Ukrainian um, book. Um, and uh, so anyway, um, that was you know, it's become kind of a real touchstone for me to just go back to that book again and again. And even in her later writings, the author um, admits that the informants were mainly women. So um, that, that book's a really important book for anybody who wants to know more about the unrecorded um, knowledge that women, women had um, in Eastern Europe. And what was the book called again? The book is called Herbs Used in, Ukraine, in Ukrainian Folk Medicine, okay. and it's very hard to come by. Um, you can possibly get it through interlibrary loan. It's by a woman named Osa, uh, Natalia Osacha Janata. Excellent. And this book that you both have written is also really important. And I'm just so happy and um, grateful for you both and for all of the hard work and dedication that it took to bring this into the world, all of your research and all of the little clues that you would find on a whim. And I loved hearing about those little clues. And then you would just like follow an instinct to be like, is this important? And then you dig a little bit more. It's just like, what a journey. So thank you for writing this book for all of us. Um, and thank you so much for talking to us in such depth today. I learned so much more and I just really appreciated getting to hear from both of you. Oh, thank you. It's been such a great honor to talk to you guys. We love your podcast and your questions are just so exciting and oh, to yes. talk about. Real, it was, yeah, this has been really terrific. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners before we depart? Um, I guess I just want to reiterate that, um, you know, it, our, our book is not a working herbal. It's more of like a peek into um, a, a, a time that's passed. And, um, and also to, you know, to respect the plants and just realize that they're, they're their own beings, you know, and they're, they've been really generous to us. And, you know, they're, they're, I don't know, they're, they're just important and we need to take very good care of them because they take care of us. Yeah. I love that. Okay. Well, thank you again. 
for being on the podcast, Deitra and Adam. Yeah. And uh, I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you, you too. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs>